turn to uh, Revelation chapter 17. Let's uh, take a minute this morning and let's go back to the future, all right? Now, I don't mean Marty McFly and uh, Doc Brown and their time-traveling DeLorean, although that is the coolest car, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. Let's go back for just a minute, uh, about 20 years, to a real pretty September morning in 2001. Let's go back to September the 11th, and let's say that it's about 8.30 that morning. Let's say that we know now, we can go back then knowing now what we know. That in 15 minutes at 8.45, an American Airlines Boeing 767 loaded with about 20 or 25,000 pounds of jet fuel is going to crash into that north tower of the World Trade Center. If we could go back there then, knowing what we know now, here's my question. How many of us would stay in that building? If we knew then what we know now and we had 15, 20, 30 minutes to get out, how many of us would choose to stay there and not flee? Or if we could go back knowing what we know, how many of us would not do whatever we could to get others out of that? Impending danger. Revelation 17 and 18 let us go back to the future, if you will, and see what is going to take place. Because what we see in Revelation, and and not just in Revelation, but what we see in several places in the New Testament, is that this world is going to pass away. Richard just read that for you out of 1 John. But that passing away will not be you know, quiet. It'll pass away under the hand of God. And what we saw in Revelation chapter 16, which just, you know, this, these seven bowls of wrath being poured out in Revelation 16, which were just astounding to see. And quite frankly, a lot of people look at them and say, man, that is the worst case of overkill I've ever seen. The wrath that's poured out there is just hard to fathom. And remember, we looked in Revelation 16 at these bowls being poured out and we said, if we lose sight of the holiness of God and the full character of God, then we lose sight of what those bowls mean and what it means to rebel against God, what it means to suffer the consequences of that rebellion. That's what we see in Revelation chapter 16. And so this earth is going to pass away. Revelation 16 Put it this way, you can look back there if you want to, just as we were closing out that chapter. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came from the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, a great earthquake such had never been seen since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake. And the great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. That's that's the picture that we saw in Revelation 16. We see more detail of that very same scene in Revelation 17 and 18. It's what Peter said would happen to this world. This world is passing away, John says. Peter said the same word that created the heavens. He says, by that same word, heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 
So this world is passing away. How many of us, knowing what we know now, need to be warned that we don't need to get comfortable here? That we need to be very careful here? That our heart's affections and our pursuits and our priorities, if we're not careful, are being put into a tower that will fall. In this closing section here in Revelation, John gives us a vision, okay? Actually, the Holy Spirit gives him a vision and we get it too, all right? We get to, we get to step back, if you will, or look forward with a perspective that will not come apart from God's Word. Okay? And so as we see this perspective, we're going to see two dramatically different storylines, two polar opposites. And the contrast is just crystal clear for us to see. Follow along in Revelation 17 first. Let's look at the first six verses there. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. And with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a beast, excuse me, on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and in it seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now turn over to Revelation chapter 21. The wording is almost exactly the same. Down in verse 9. Then one... Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, a clearest crystal. And it had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates were twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. So we have this comparison. Two cities. Both of them equated to a woman. One a harlot. And one a bride. One is alluring and enticing on the outside, but nasty on the inside. The other one is radiant, majestic, holy, reflecting the very glory of God. One will pass away violently under the judgmental hand of God. The other one will dwell with God forever in his presence and be blessed there. And we'll see the comparisons as we work through this. But these two cities, okay, catch this. These two cities represent two allegiances, two worldviews. Two different priorities and purposes for living. These two cities represent two decisions. 
two different decisions, two ways to live. So in chapter 17, she's called the great prostitute, the harlot, the whore. She is called the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now, John's readers in that first century Central Asia would have thought immediately of Rome. Because Rome is portrayed on their coins, in their literature, on their flags, as a goddess. Rome is a she. And everybody recognized that. And we still have that tendency today to refer to nations and nationalities in the female gender. But she is not a goddess here in Revelation 17. She is a harlot. An influential harlot. A harlot who brings devastation along with her idolatry and her sensuality and her wealth. But understand, this is not Rome alone that we're talking about. This is a timeless symbol. This is a timeless symbol of nations and empires that are opposed to God and his people. Some of them not as violently as others, but all of them seek their own ways, their own purposes, their own futures, their own pursuits. And the beast and the harlot are set on destroying God's kingdom and God's people. And that's the that's the challenge that we have here. That's what we see before us. But here's what we'll see. That the destruction will come. We, we know who wins, right? But the way it's carried out, evil will turn on evil. They kind of consume themselves. But it comes under the hand of God. He has a purpose and a plan for all of it. The Lamb will conquer because why? He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the text tells us. So as Richard read those verses again, I've, I've thought about those this week. Just, I, I was thinking about that. Did you hear, did you hear the phrase? Did you hear the, the, the tendencies? Did you hear the characteristics? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. That's not from the Father. That's of the world. Keep that in our minds as we look at this. Because here's the question that John has for us. There's symbols. There's numbers. There's beasts. There's, there's pictures that are hard to understand. And... And again, I I don't know what they all are, but I'm not in the minority there, okay? All right? There is no majority opinion on what chapter 17 means. Here's what is crystal clear. It's, 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 the question is, where are the affections of your heart today? Where is your heart's home? Have, Have we been seduced by the beast and his harlot? Quietly? Just step by step? Or are we serving the lamb and standing with him? It's it's a pretty straightforward question. And the warning could not be clearer. You'll see it next week in Revelation 18. Look ahead. Just look over at chapter 18 and hear hear God's word of warning to his people, even as this picture is being presented to us. Come out of her, my people, he says in verse 4 of chapter 18, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Come out of her. So we're going to look today and see where is our heart? Where is our affections? Come and see. That's what the angel says to John at the first of this passage. And it's an observation. Those first verses that I read are simply an observation. Come and see, the angel says. Come and see the judgment 
Come and see the judgment. I'm going to show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Now, it's a dual focus here. There's a focus on the prostitute and on the beast. And it's interesting. There's going to be a whole lot more said about the beast than the harlot. But there's judgment coming in this passage. So we need to see that. And yes, they will turn on each other. Yes, one will consume the other. But God is over it all and working it all. There is judgment here. But he also says, come and see her influence. Did you notice this? The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her. And they are drunk, it says there in verse 2, on the wine of her sexual immorality. And not just the kings, but the dwellers on the earth. That's a phrase we see throughout Revelation of everybody in the world. There are two groups in the book of Revelation at the end. There are those who stand with the Lamb and those who are called dwellers of the earth. Those dwellers of the earth are those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. So so it's, it's clearly you are either in or not when it comes to the end of this book. And, and we see that this influence that has come from this harlot, and notice that she is clearly identified. Okay, there's no question about that. It said over in verse 18, over in verse 18, I'll read this in a minute, but it says, The woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. It's not just a city on the Euphrates. It's not just Rome. It's every kingdom, every government, every pursuit of mankind from the beginning in Genesis, after three, after chapter three. So it's a timeless picture. And she's identified there as this woman who is represented in that. And her influence is not just on the elite. It's on everybody. Look at verse 15. Again, I'll read it in a minute. I'm working through this kind of a section at a time. But in verse 15, it says, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Those dwellers of the earth, that's inclusive. That's everybody. That's who's influenced. That's who's intoxicated by this woman's pursuits. And, and you see there's a satanic alliance there. She is seated on this scarlet beast. Again, there's a contrast. What we're going to see over in Revelation 19 is heaven opened and behold a white horse. So there's a contrast between a scarlet beast and a white horse. There's a contrast between a harlot and the one who's sitting on that white horse who is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So this this satanic alliance, if you will, and they share this color that's clearly symbolic, this scarlet color. The purple is a picture of of wealth. It comes it comes from a very rare dye that actually came from a mollusk. And, and it's rare and it's expensive. But this color of purple and scarlet, this color of wealth and this color of blood is this color that they share. It's the same color that the dragon had in Revelation 12. It's the same color, the beast here. It's all the same. And it, I think it's the same beast that we saw in Revelation 13, the same Antichrist. It's the same beast that Daniel saw over in Daniel chapter 7. And she's riding this beast. But here's the question. Who's in control? Is she the one holding the reins and directing the beast like we would our horse? Well, we will see the answer is no. She, this is the beast in his harlot. Okay? She, she's not really controlling much of anything in the end. But there's this unholy alliance. And she's attractive in this subtle, subtle sinful way. Look at what she's wearing. 
She's wearing gold and jewels and pearls. The things that the world craves and kills and dies for. Over in chapter 18 of Revelation, the merchants of this world and the kings of this earth will mourn over the loss. Not of her, I don't think, but of the resources that come from her. They will mourn her loss because their source of wealth is dried up. But the things she's wearing that we crave and kill and long for, later on we're going to see this in Revelation, guys. They are building materials in heaven. All right? They are building materials. We will walk on them. They will be on the walls around us like bricks and rocks. So the thing this world kills and dies for, and the things that she entices people with, are... They, they pale in comparison to the worth and value of our God. And notice what else she has in her hand. This cup full of abominations, of the unclean things that kind of go with her immorality. Jeremiah talks about this in Jeremiah chapter 51. And he refers to the historical Babylon there on the river Euphrates as this cup filled with immorality that intoxicates the nations and makes them crazy. That's, that's my interpretation of it. But back in Revelation 14, we, we heard the second angel following it, and it said, Fallen is Babylon the great, which made the nations drink the maddening wine of her adultery. So this isn't just intoxicated. This isn't drunk. This is crazy drunk. This is the mix that she's drinking and serving makes people crazy. It's maddening. Because it's filled with the things that the world craves. The idolatries, the wealth, the immoralities, the pleasure, all of those things that the world says, please us in the end, make us crazy and kill us. And that's the picture that we have here. But that cup has something else in it. Notice that it says that I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The martyrs of Christ, all those Old Testament and New Testament saints, all those martyrs that have come still are coming today. She's drunk on their blood. Now, the people who would have heard this in John's day could not be more revulsed by it. And our fear and our violent prone culture, where even our kids video games are splashed with it. We've lost sight of the. The grossness of this violence. Our children are drinking it up. Hours on end. It would have been repulsive to John's readers. And it should be to us as well. And God is not ignoring it. He's not ignoring it. And she hates those who are not with her. This harlot, she's no passive whore standing on the street. She hates those who are not with her. She hates those who are not aligned with her and the beast. Because this world system will have nothing of those who would stand up against it. And she and those who are with her, those who are following the beast, will torment the people of God, terrorize them, and take pleasure in seeing them killed. She, great, she takes great pleasure in that. She's drunk on that blood. That's the idea that we have here. She's, she's taking, taking great pleasure from it. And it says there's a, there's a mysterious name on her forehead. 
headband or something like this. I was reading this week that it was not uncommon for prostitutes of that day to wear something over their foreheads that kind of indicated who they were. On her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And again, this, this is not a literal city per se. Yeah, John's readers would have understood it to be Rome, but it's far beyond that. It is, one writer said, it is an ever-present reality and seductress that exists and entices in every age and every generation. It's, there's a siren call. You, you, do you recognize that phrase? Those of you who are, um, you know, those of you who are literally astute will recognize that from Homer's Odyssey. Some of the rest of us will know it from, oh, brother, where art thou? All right. I, I was looking, I was posting something this morning on Facebook for our church page and just saw a picture that Tim Bose had put up there of him sitting on a motorcycle. I don't know if you saw it. It said, do not seek the treasure. Some of you know what that is. All right. I mean, these goofballs are driving down the road. You know, these three convicts, all of a sudden one goes, ah! you know, what is that? And he hears this singing from down at the river. It's the Cohen Brothers' version of the siren call. And the sound, sweet, brings destruction. Crash on the rocks is what it is. And she's seductive, and she is the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So there's this timeless picture. Now, there's one other thing I want you to notice here before we go to this next section. If John says that this angel carried him away in the spirit into a wilderness, into the desert. And it's important that we catch that, that we recognize that. Because the desert, yeah, the desert throughout Isaiah talks a lot about the desert. And it's a picture of desolation, lifelessness, danger, danger to God's people. There's, it's dry, it's desolate there. But also, what did God do in the book of Exodus when he was rescuing his people? He took them into the desert, into the wilderness. One writer said that, that this is, he, and, I, and I'm not absolutely certain about this. I don't know if I hold to this, this whole picture there. But, but one writer said that John was being led into the desert in order to avoid being mesmerized by the harlot. And the angel says, don't marvel at that. Don't, don't marvel at that, John. And church, I think there is a, a relevant, important message for us to see here that John is taken away into the wilderness where God's provision also provides God's perspective. We can't get that in the middle of Times Square. And I use Times Square not in, not in a sense necessarily of don't go there, but just Times Square being the world system and message and billboards just circling around us 360 degrees, 24 hours a day. And you're not going to hear from the Lord there. And you're not going to have God's perspective there. And John is brought into the wilderness where he can see his, his enemies for what they are and where he can see and hear from God as he should. So he's taken away into the wilderness. So there's the observation of the woman and the beast. Now, what about the interpretation of the woman and the beast? Follow along with me in these next two verses. Verse 6, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman 
and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and it is to come. Don't marvel at these things, John. Just just listen to me. The text will tell us in a minute that it requires wisdom to understand. So understand this first, church. There is a pattern here. You see that? Why do you marvel? The beast you saw was, is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. And people are marveling at it because it says again in verse 9, it was and is not and is to come. What does that mean? It means that this playlist is set on repeat. It's just over and over and over. It's, it's timeless in that sense. Throughout history, as Richard read from 1 John, there is the Antichrist to come. But there have been Antichrists, plural, throughout the ages. And did you notice that he said those Antichrists typically seem to come from the church? They look religious. They, they look Christian. They look, they're trying to, to replicate, if you will. Jesus and the things of Christ, which we see in this unholy trinity of Satan and the beast and the Antichrist. But these, this history of Antichrist who come from the abyss, just like we saw earlier in Revelation. They come, they're here for a while, they seem to die off, and then before you know it, another one raises its ugly head. It's like whack-a-mole. That one dies off and the pattern just repeats itself. And so the, the debate is, has been, well, what nations is it talking about here? Is it talking about Egypt? Is it talking about Babylon? Is it talking about the Medo-Persian Empire? Is it talking about Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, Rome? Is it talking about communist China, the Soviet Union? Is it talking about North Korea? Yes! Yes! Is it talking about Western cultures and governments? Yes. Yes. Now, they're not all equally wicked. They're not all equally evil, if you will. But there's never been a government of men seeking the things of men that have not been in love with this prostitute. Excuse me, that's a wrong phrase. That have not wanted to use this prostitute. None of them are going to take her home to meet Mama. But they will use her. And so lest we think that we might be off the hook or our culture or, you know, we're modern people, we don't say, no, verse 3 says the dwellers of the earth. That's us too. That's regular folks who, if we're not in Christ, we're drunk. And in the end, this false trinity is just trying to replicate the very resurrection of Jesus. Trying to duplicate, if you will, being here, being gone, and coming back. And the world's buying it. The world is buying it. So this, there's a pattern here. But understand that it's organized, too. Look at, verses, look, at, look at the next verses that come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. Verse 9, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is. And the other is not yet to come. Excuse me, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. 
As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for an hour, for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind. And they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called chosen, are called and chosen and faithful. This calls for a mind of wisdom. It calls for the work of the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts So that we can see the glory of God in the face of Christ and understand the truth of his word and apply that truth in a world around us that's confusing. Apply that truth so that we can see and understand what's going on around us. Now, this mind of wisdom, and I really appreciate something Andy Davis says about this, and he said it in several places concerning Revelation and other prophetic literature and some things I've read from him And he says that this mind of wisdom is something that is going to be timely for those who are there in that day. Whenever that end day is. Meaning that we're not necessarily in that day or we would know it. We would know if we were right in the middle of the great tribulation. We would know because of what's going on around us. We would not be in this room meeting like this if we were in that day. So it calls for wisdom that is timely and responsive to that. But it calls for wisdom now, too. Many Protestant commentators look at this passage that we've read, look at this this beast. And a lot of uh, commentators since the Reformation have said this is the Roman Catholic Church. Because of the way, well, because of a lot of reasons. Because of the way they've compromised in the gospel. And part of that is true. The gospel is compromised by Catholic doctrine. But this goes way beyond one central religion. It it goes way beyond that. There is, I think, a consensus that the seven heads or seven mountains is a reference in John's day to Rome. Because Rome was called the city on seven hills. There were seven hills in the walls of Rome. So... Seven would have communicated to them, yes, this is Rome, but it would have also communicated, as it does, I think, to us, that that seven being a full number of full power, full authority, something that is true of every beastly, if you will, empire. And this this seven heads that were seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other's yet to come, and they'll come and remain. Who are these seven kings and an eighth that is to come out of them. And there's all kinds of discussion and debate about that. And some have said, well, it's the Roman emperors, but the math doesn't work. You've got to drop a bunch and add some. That seven doesn't work with those Roman empire, those Roman emperors. Some have looked back to Daniel and talked about the empires that Daniel sees in chapter 2 and chapter 7. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persian, the Greeks being number 5, and then Rome being number 6, and the kingdom of the Antichrist being number 7 to come. And, and part of that may be true, but again, the number 7 is, is communicating a completeness and a perfection, if you will, in this. But here's the point that I think is important to see. I don't know. We, we just don't know who all of these are. Who these, these kings represent. Who, who all of these symbols represent. But 
what we do see is clear that they will have authority for one hour. Why should that be significant to us? Well, because back in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, when the seventh angel blew his trumpet, the loud voices from heaven said, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Christ and he shall reign forever. Forever. Not one hour, not for a short time, forever. These kingdoms, these kings, whomever they are, listen, guys, King Nebuchadnezzar was not the first worldly leader, earthly leader, to stand on his balcony and look out across his city and take great pride in his accomplishments. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't the first one to stand up and say, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar was not the first one to say that. It started back in Babel in Genesis 11. Is this pile of rocks that reaches up to the heavens not a marvelous thing that we have done? And if we're not careful, we're going to be the same kind of people. Is this not something great that I have done? That is not the word of someone who is focused on the Lamb. All these kingly, all these empires come and gone. They've had their day. They seem to pass away. And another one comes along in their place. The world has its plans, but God has his plan. And it's important for us as Americans. To, you know, I, I just think it's real important for us to recognize the United States does have a place and a plan in God's plan, as does every nation before us and every nation after us. As did the British Empire. As did the empires that came before and after. But this nation too, like every nation before us and every nation after us till Jesus comes back. The inclination of our policymakers and our presidents, whoever, whomever, from the first one to the last one, have never been only for the glory of God and for his Christ. Therefore, they will fall one day. As will every other nation before us and after us until Jesus sets up his eternal kingdom. It's just critically important that we recognize the spirit of Babylon is present in every generation, every government. And understand that those systems are doomed. Look at how the text says it in verse 13. These are of one mind. They have and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. (laughs) For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. This one world alliance that we saw earlier in the book of Revelation, this one mind They come together, these puppet kings, these puppet powers, this worldwide puppet regime, and they hand over their power to the beast, it says. And they are being gathered, as we saw earlier in Revelation, to come to this place called Armageddon. And later on in Revelation in chapter 19, we're going to see how all that goes down. And this contrasting white horse to this scarlet beast will have a rider on it. And the rider will have a mouth 
And that rider will have a sharp sword coming from that mouth. And Revelation 19:15 says that sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty. The lamb will conquer. Why? Because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Nebuchadnezzar, great Nebuchadnezzar, who stood up on his balcony and pointed to his own glory, whom God diminished in a powerful way, stood on that balcony and stood in the presence of Daniel alone, Daniel later on in his in his rule and said, truly, your God is God of gods and king of kings. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Psalm 136, give thanks to the God of gods. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his steadfast love endures forever. So this phrase that's given to Jesus there is for God alone. And there's no God like him. And it is stupid to rebel against him. And it will only end in destruction. So this army is put together and being led to a place that they, I don't think they really understand what it is they're about to face. The text ends this way in verse 15. Follow along. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they are the beast. Excuse me. They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Like I said earlier, when a man is finished with a prostitute, a holler, he doesn't take her home to meet mama. Okay, Richard Gere may have done that in that movie, but that's just a movie. All right. It doesn't happen. Like any pimp or any customer, when you're done, you toss her off. And when the beast is finished with this harlot for his evil purposes, her influence, as worldwide as it is, is is short-lived. And I was reading this week, I appreciated the article that I read, that what happens here to the harlot happens to everyone who in the end rejects Jesus and comes to Satan. Uh, when Satan is done with someone or something, they're destroyed and they are devoured. It's over. And so it is with her. And love for this woman, or at least desire to use her, turns to hate from these kings and this beast in verse 16. They strip her of their wealth. They strip her. They make her naked. They show her for what she is. And then they consume her and burn it. it terrible picture all the all the position all the power all the wealth prestige everything that she had is taken away it's just it reminds me of what happened to Jezebel the dogs devoured her flesh and that's what's going to happen here and so we'll see in chapter 18 how her demise is greatly I mean merchants stand and go fall on his Babylon on the great Kings will wail because of what happens to her. But again, I don't, think, I don't think for one second it's because they're grieving the loss of her. They're grieving the loss of the gold and the scarlet cloth and the wealth and the pearls and everything that came from her. And, that, and that's what will happen there. 
All of this is under the hand of God. God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. We cannot lose sight of that principle, that truth. Everything that's going on is going on because God has planned and purposed it that way. So let me give you three three points of application here, okay? First, I want to speak to you if, if you've never trusted in Jesus. Uh, if, if Today, if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ, if you're going to watch this online or see this sermon somewhere, Christ has come on a rescue mission to get you out of that tower. That's why he came. That's why he came. And the, and the wrath we saw poured out in Revelation 16 and what we see taking place here in chapter 17, Satan wants to use you, abuse you, and throw you away eternally into hell. And Jesus has come to rescue you from that. And he's come taking the wrath that we deserve, the holiness of God that we see demonstrated in chapter 16 and later on in the rest of this book. That holiness, that, that's who God is and that's holiness that God requires. And that's the record, that's the holiness that Christ accomplished on, on behalf of those who trust in him. Come to Jesus today. He shed his blood for you. His perfect righteousness will be the record that is yours when you stand before God. And this life that the world promises, it's just empty. Kids, it's empty. That influencer that you see on Instagram, that's empty. And it is deadly. For the church, for Christians today, come out from her is that, is that word of warning. And it's a call for us to examine our lives and to look at the affections of our hearts. The Puritan John Owen said, we need to be killing sin or it will kill us. So there's a proactive part of us. Those who stand with the Lamb are called and chosen. That's God's part. He's absolutely sovereign over that. Paul says in in Ephesians 1 that he called us from before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, Paul says, as adoption for children. That's God's work. He calls us. He chooses. But those that are faithful, that's that's our part of that, I believe. That, That work of faithfulness, that... That idea of coming out from her, of assessing our own lives. This, this week in Life Group, we'll look at Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all diligence or with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. That's our work as individual Christians. To assess our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. To look at our lives and to recognize, look from the wilderness, if you will, of God's Word. And understand the power and the enticements and the allure of the world around us. To help our children understand the power of those enticements. To understand that it's just superficial, this beauty. It's deadly. And there's no playing with it. There's no dabbling in it. It's designed to lure us away from Jesus, away from his holiness. It's the commercials. It's the websites. It's the it's all of it. And, 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 and we need to recognize that yesterday in a leadership cohort that I'm leading with a bunch of guys, we went through a little book. There's some copies of it out on the bookstore. I cannot recommend it to you more highly. It's it's simply called conversion. Conversion. 
And, and, and it just goes through what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be truly converted. And one of the things that Michael Lawrence talks about in that book is the responsibility for us to assess ourselves and to, as a church, as, as I'll say in a second, help each other assess that. And if you're in Christ today, let me encourage you to assess the reality of that standing and to assess the health of that relationship with Jesus, not based on some prayer you may have prayed 20 years ago. But on the progress you are making with Christ. Now, it may be three steps forward and two back. It might be five back and two forward. But there is a pattern of progress in your life. Or else you need to deeply assess that. And part of that progress is just taking stock of our affections. And of where our heart feels most at home. And of what our pursuits are. And what we're teaching our children to pursue. Because the harlot wants them and wants us. As a church, finally, thirdly, God has made us, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians, ministers of reconciliation. We are ministers of rescue. And like it or not, church, we live in Babylon. But that's not new either. Peter was writing to his, 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 the folks who got his first letter in 1 Peter 5. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. That's the church in Babylon. Peter was in Rome. We're in Babylon, church. And the spirit of Babylon and the system of Babylon is just as alive and well in Roxborough as it is in Washington, as it is in Moscow, as it is any place else. And the enticements and the pleasures and the food and the drink and the drugs and the possessions and the luxuries and all of that that goes along with the world is enticing. And it is a church effort. It is a family effort. It is a corporate responsibility that we have to one another to help each other stay straight and true. Or else we'll veer off as individuals. We'll veer off. We, we won't be able to stay on it. So I ask at the beginning, who of us, knowing what we know now, would run into that tower? And as a church, our responsibility is to recognize right now we're in it. And we know what's going to happen to it. And we have the responsibility while we are in it to not love it. To not make it our primary pursuit, but to recognize that we are an outpost of the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God. And our calling is one of rescue. It is one of encouragement. Our calling is one of being diligent over each other's lives. And we do it for the sake of each other and we do it for the sake of our neighbors because one day it will come down. Let's pray. Father, we just ask you to turn our eyes to Jesus this morning and to look full into his wonderful face. Help us hear from you and not from the world around us. Help us love you and not the things around us. Help us to love the souls who are a part of our lives, the, the, the souls, the people that you brought into our lives, Lord. Help us love them, love them well to, to extend that hand of rescue and that word of rescue and the gospel to them. But Lord, keep our hearts straight, I pray. Keep our affections where they need to be. And Father, we lift that up to you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.